Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Good morning, Emmanuel Faith. It is great to be together today, whether you're here in the house, if you're online or over in the chapel. We are so thankful that you are here. And I just want to make sure that you remember what we did last week. Christ is risen. And it's still true this week. Amen? Amen. All right, I want to do a little experiment with you. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and hold out your index finger. Okay? Hold it up in the air. With your eyes closed, I want you to point north. Ready? Point. All right, perfect. Perfect. Hold it there. Hold it there. Hold it there. Wherever it was. Hold it there. Those of you that aren't playing, I see you. Okay? Now, with your finger still pointed where you think north is, open your eyes and look around. All right, those that are pointing up, bravo. Bravo. If you can see from where, where I'm standing and in the chapel, Pastor Savon is going to be pointing north for you in just a moment. If you can see where I'm standing, but from where I'm standing, you'll see that fingers are pointing in every direction. And I think in so many ways, when our culture today talks about sexuality, it looks the same way. We're pointing like this. Uh, some would even argue that there is, in fact, a true north at all. That there's a definitive way that is right and beautiful and good and true. But just like there is an actual true north, there's a true north for our sexuality as well. If you're wondering, north is this direction. Okay? Pastor Saban will be in the chapel pointing this direction. Now, no, we can debate that, but you'd be wrong. And like I said, I think in our cultural moment right now, there's a lot of directions being pointed at as to what we do with our sexuality. So so here's the first question. How did we get here? How did we get here where there's so many differing views? A lot of people would point back to the 1960s and the sexual revolution and the idea of free love that started to shape or reshape the way that as a culture, as a nation, we viewed sexuality. But I think you actually have to go back further than the sexual revolution. Because as we're going to see in this letter in 1 Corinthians that we're going to be back studying together this morning, it was written in 54 AD, and they had some pretty strange ideas about sexuality. It's not something that's new within the past few decades. It's actually something, a question that humanity has been wrestling with from the beginning of time. And the scriptures are going to give us language. They're going to give us a a true north, a a direction to point us in and to move in so that we can be people who are sexually healthy and whole and who live in the joy that God designed us to live in. That's what season three of 1 Corinthians is all about. About. It's a season that we're calling sacred sexuality. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about marriage, divorce, singleness, sexual immorality, pornography, and all sorts of important, look up at me for a second, really touchy and very debated topics. Amen? 
So as we begin, let me begin with two statements. Number one, I I know that there are people in this room who have suffered from some sort of sexual abuse, things that were done to you, places that you've been that make a discussion like this really, really challenging and potentially triggering. And I just want you to know, we see you. We see you. And we want to hold space for that journey that you've been on. Second, I know that there are people in this room who have a a checkered sexual past and maybe even, even present. You know, there's some places that you've been, things that you've done, where a discussion like this is really, really challenging and you almost immediately start to feel condemnation. So here's what I want, I want to say up front. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is the grace of God that welcomes us home. He wants to speak firmly to you. I'm convinced of that but not out of condemnation, out of conviction, not out of anger, but out of kindness. And so there's some work that he wants to do in every single one of our lives over the next few weeks. Because here's the truth of the matter, regardless of whether it's overt or a little bit more subversive, all of our sexuality is broken in some way. Because we don't just live in the wake of the sexual revolution, we live in the wake of the fall. And so all of us are broken, all of us are fractured, all of us have a challenge before us to live in line with God's design. We live east of Eden, as it were. And God has some work that he wants to do in every single one of us. And with that in mind, we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. If you have a Bible, will you turn there with me? And as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context Last time we were together, we studied the very first portion of chapter 12. And before that, we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we were introduced to the reality that in the church in Corinth, a young church that was coming out of paganism and coming out of a culture that was um, fairly um, sexually promiscuous, it had worked its way into the church also. So in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes to the church and says, Hey, there's a, a young man who's sleeping with his stepmom. That's a no-no, right? And I joked with you and said, usually when people talk about getting back to being like the early church, I hope they're not talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, right? That there were some issues going on in the Corinthian church that Paul had to address. And here we're going to see the second part of his address to them in regards to their sexuality. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 6. Are you there? Here's what he wrote. He said this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, look up at the screen with me for just a moment. The translators did us a favor here by putting quotes around this first portion. All things are lawful for me. 
They helped us out because those aren't in the original language, which is why if you have an NASB in front of you, they're not in your Bible because the NASB tries to stick very literal to what was in the original. But the translators made some decisions for us, and they said, this is actually a slogan that's floating around in Corinth at the time that Paul wants to discuss with the church. It's like he's saying, okay, you guys have heard it said in your town, all things are lawful for me, but he goes, I'm, I'm not necessarily agreeing with that, and I want to add in a question for you to ask, is it, is it helpful? And then he says, all things are lawful, again in air quotes, but I will not be dominated by anything. Essentially, he's saying to the Corinthian church, you might be asking and answering the wrong question. And the idea is that they had taken some of the slogans or narratives that their culture had believed, and they had brought them into the church. I know this is really hard for you to believe, because this would never happen today, right? I mean, they had taken this idea of freedom in Christ, true or false? True! We are free in Christ. And they had applied it to their sexuality. They had applied it to being, okay, um, nothing is off limits for me. I can do whatever I want. They had taken this true idea and applied it in a way that wasn't in any way, shape, or form what God intended. We have our own slogans too. In fact, slogans are simply cultural narratives that give us insights into the things that we believe and we hold to be true. You do you. Look out for number one. Do whatever makes you happy. Happiness is the the, the epitome of being alive in so many ways in the U.S. today. And it does. It gets its way into the church. God wants you to be happy. God helps those who, you know where you can't find that? The Bible. And Paul claims that the Corinthians are basing their lives and their life of faith on the the wrong story. And then he goes on and he starts to address the slogan that he really wants to get at. Here's what he wrote. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's a saying. In Corinth. And God will destroy both one and the other. Now, here's where I want to push in with you a little bit because my personal opinion is that this is the ESV, that the ESV should have taken this quote right here and moved it down to the end of the sentence. I think the whole sentence is a quote from Corinth. Now, if you have an NIV Bible in front of you, you'll see that I think they got this right. And luckily, Dr. Mark Strauss, who helped translate the NIV, will be here next week. And you can ask him why they got it right and the ESV got it wrong, okay? But I think the whole idea is a Corinthian idea because this this idea that God will destroy both, um, essentially, the stomach and food, one and the other, is more Platonic than it is Pauline. It's, It's more Plato than it is Paul. But what's the slogan saying? What's the slogan saying in general? It's saying the stomach is made for food. So give it food. He'll go on to say the body was made for sex. The implication is give it sex. 
It's what it was designed for. Your, your body, the argument in Corinth is your body is a, has purely utilitarian functions. It doesn't really matter what you do with your body because God's going to destroy it anyway. Live and let live. Eat, drink, and be merry. Who gives a rip? And essentially, it's a hedonistic, laissez-faire attitude about the body. Who cares about our bodies? They are just simply physical entities. You have needs. You wouldn't deprive your stomach of food. Don't deprive your body of sex. Now, that sounds eerily familiar in our day, does it not? There's a whole movement in our cultural moment that's called the hookup culture. In a recent study that was done, over half of millennials agreed that hooking up or having occasional casual sex with a friend or acquaintance is a low-risk way to meet sexual needs. Dave Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons in their recent book, Good Faith, wrote, The modern hookup is nearly as casual as going to coffee with a friend was back when we were in college. And the we here are people who are roughly my age in their 40s. It's just like going to coffee was. And the prevailing idea in our culture is it's just sex. It's no big deal. And so in a recent study, surveys, 29% of people said that they had had sex on the first date. Men average 20 sexual partners in their life. Females average six. 11 million adults surveyed said that they viewed adult websites in a typical week. These are the narratives, friends. This is the the air that we breathe. You need to look no further than TV shows like The Bachelor or Love Island or the myriad of other ones in our culture that reinforce the exact same thing. They're just our bodies. They have needs. No big deal. It's exactly where Paul turned his attention. He said, and God will destroy both. One and the other. The body is not meant. See, this is what he's talking about. His discussion is around how we interact with our physical bodies. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So notice what Paul does here. He speaks into this moment in the Corinthian culture and he addresses Jesus' followers and he calls them to understand just how important your physical body is is. That word body is mentioned eight times in the section of scripture that we are studying together this morning. He says they're so important. Your body is so important. Your physical body and what you do with it is so important because it was meant for whom? The Lord. The Lord. And he's confronting this idea in the Corinthian culture that's platonic in origin. It's a view that placed very little prominence on our physical bodies. It's called dualism. Will you say that with me? Dualism. I hear you out in the chapel too, right on. And it's still alive and well today. I'll just tell you that. Dualism has not gone anywhere. Dualism affirms essentially that that, um, the spirit is good and that matter or the material world is, is evil. And so therefore, there's this disconnect that happens between the material you and the spiritual you, or what we might call the real 
And so then you can justify an anything goes attitude with your body because the real you transcends the physical you. It's bigger than the real you. It's more real than your body. See, in our culture, dualism might sound something like the real you is something disconnected from and at times even in opposition to your physical body. This is Gnosticism. This is dualism repackaged for a modern society. See, the reality though, friends, is that Jesus' followers believe that people are embodied human beings rather than human beings who happen to have a body. And here's what I mean by that. Part of being human is having a body. Your body is important. It's not insignificant. I love the way that Nancy Piercy in her wonderful book, Love Thy Body, put it. She said this, and try to follow where she goes. Christianity holds that body and soul together form an integrated unity. That's really important. That human beings, that a, that a human being is an embodied soul. By contrast, personhood theory entails a tool-level dualism that sets the body against the person, as though they were two separate things merely stuck together. As a result, it demands the body, or demeans the body as extrinsic to the person. Something inferior that can be used purely for pragmatic purposes. Are you following what she's, where she's going? And she's confronting this idea as essentially heresy, as dualism, as contrary to the way of Jesus and the teachings of Christ. And so what Paul says to the Corinthian church, I love this. Paul says, Jesus wants to save your body, not just your soul. Jesus wants to save your body, not just the soul. In fact, he would go so far as to say that not only does the body matter in this life, but it matters in the life to come. And here we get right on the heels of Resurrection Sunday, last Sunday, we get the chance to reinforce what we learned last Sunday. And it's not out of the blue and it's not imposed on the text. It's exactly where Paul goes. Verse 14, look at what he says. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. He goes, you want to know how important your physical body is? Well, Jesus walked out of the grave with a physical body. And you will walk out of the grave with a physical body one day also. So don't divide what God has uniquely combined and what he has put together. Every time we say the earliest church creed, the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Of the body. And so, Paul's attack on dualism goes straight to the resurrection and he goes, no, 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 you are not just an immortal soul. You are a person who will one day walk out of the grave. Solely the immortality of the soul is platonic. It is not Pauline. And it has worked its way into the church. And Paul right here wants to address it for the church in Corinth. So follow his argument. Follow his argument. Paul says, because your body will be resurrected, what you do with your body matters. Therefore, the way that you engage sexually matters. It matters. 
And in verse 13, if you just go back there with me, you'll see that he used this term sexual immorality. In the Greek, it's one word. It's the word porneia. And it was, in Paul's opinion, I would argue, the macro problem of what was going on in the Corinthian church. And it makes sense based on the society that they were a part of and that they were in some ways coming out of. Um, Many times when that word porneia is used in ancient Greek, it means specifically, uniquely, and only prostitution or visiting a prostitute. But the way Paul uses it is he, he makes it bigger and he uses it sort of as a dump truck term to include any form of sexual expression that goes outside of God's design. And you might go, okay, well, what's God's design, Paulson? Let me tell you as clearly as I can. God's design is covenantal, monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong marriage. That's God's design for sexual expression. And anything other than that is a sexuality that is distorted by the fall. And so here, we can, we can talk about that, we can have discussions about that, but you need to know historically, when we look back at the journey of the early church, one of the calling cards of the early church, one of the fundamental convictions of the early church is that they had a form of sexual purity that was unmatched anywhere else in the ancient world. It was one of the things that they brought to the table. One of the things that made them distinct. So I'll say it like this, probably a little bit watered down from the way that Paul says it, but what you do with your sexuality has massive implications for the way that you live in the world, for the way that you experience God, and for the amount of joy that you are able to hold, walk in, and receive. Jesus is interested in your body, not just your soul. And so, what Paul does is he starts to push into that and he wants to address some erroneous convictions that the church in Corinth had and held. And so he starts going after, uh, he goes after three or four of them specifically. Let me show them to you right from the text. Verse 15, here's the first that he wants to address. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So so you're saying something happened, not just to your soul, but to your what? Body, when you became a Jesus follower. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? I mean, he's, he's pretty direct, is he not? You became a part of the body of Christ. And he's using body, I I think, with sort of a a double entendre. Like you are part of Christ's body, the church, but you are also members. Jesus became a part of you when you put faith in him. And his answer to that question is, shall we then uh, take the members and make him united with a prostitute? And he answers that question. He doesn't want to leave it out there as a rhetorical. Because in Corinth, you didn't know what you were going to get. And he says... Never, never. Prostitution was big business in Corinth. Uh, There there was an ancient temple to Aphrodite, goddess of beauty and love. There were incense-filled rooms lit with sort of candlelight uh, confines. And you had thousands and thousands of young women raising money to make the temple go through offering their bodies in prostitution to whomever would pay. 
It was commonplace in Corinth at the time. And so notice Paul's argument. He said, when you became a Christ follower, you became part of his body. But, catch this, this is huge, he also became a part of yours. So when you go and you visit a prostitute, he's saying to the church, you're taking Christ with you. And the church is going, wow. We didn't see it like that. In the same way that you dishonor your spouse if you went to a prostitute, you dishonor, dishonor the Lord. And he goes on and he makes a second argument and he says, and he says, oops, verse 16, it's not on there. Verse 16, he says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become what? Where, where's he quoting from? Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And Paul's pointing out that God's design for sexuality is a holistic and permanent connection that would happen when two people give themselves through sex to one another. So he's grounding his reasoning in why you shouldn't go to a prostitute in God's design and creation. So you have to imagine that the Corinthians are getting this in 54 AD and they're going, that's old school. That's, that's prudish. We've progressed from there. Right? I mean, it's thousands of years old when they get it. So I just want to press on us a little bit that the idea that something is old-fashioned or out of vogue or not progressive enough was the exact same thing that the Corinthians read when they got this. As if to say that argument is irrelevant. Irrelevant. Because Paul doesn't tone down his message at all in light of what's going on in their cultural moment. This ethic ran contrary to everything that was the prevailing conviction of the Corinthian culture at large. It wasn't popular when it was written. And you don't have to tell me it's not popular now. I know. I know. But don't miss Paul's point. Paul's point is that there is something that happens in your soul and your body when you connect with somebody else physically through sexual intercourse. That's what he's saying. And you know what? The science backs this up. The studies back this up. That there is something that happens. Your body actually releases oxytocin into your body during intercourse. It's a hormone that um, not only does it make for a very positive social functioning, but it's associated with bonding and trust and loyalty. Something in your brain happens to say, I am connected to this person forever. So to use 2022 language, Paul's saying there's no such thing as casual sex. No such thing. Why? Why? Because body and spirit are not independent. They're interconnected. That's his argument. They're not, in, they're not independent. They are interconnected. You're a whole person. Not just a sum of disconnected parts. 
So Paul's next statement, it might not seem to, to fit perfectly, but I would encourage you to think deeper about it. Here's what he says next, verse 17. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. See, here's what Paul's saying. God desires intimate, close connection with you. What a gift that is. What, 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 what glory that is. What beauty that is. And the reason he's saying that is because what we do with our body affects how we experience and how we interact with God. It's not insignificant. It's not just an added thought. Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So, so what you do with your heart, what you do with your body that affects your heart, affects the way that you interact with and the way that you see God. To say it another way, if you aren't pure in heart, you're going to have a hard time seeing God. And so Paul's point is that spiritual fervor demands sexual fidelity. We can't divide these parts of ourselves. They are distinctly interconnected. Which is why he says what he says next. It's the only command given thus far in the text. All the rest has been theology and commentary on Corinthian culture. But what he says next is a command. Flee from sexual immorality, from pornea. Every other sin a person commits outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So here, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that we, when, when we engage in sexual immorality, what we're actually doing is dehumanizing ourselves. We are taking a piece of the Imago Dei that we were created to carry dividing it into parts, and we are lowering what God has created to be elevated. We're turning ourselves into animals, when in reality, we are human beings. And so Paul pushes back on that. I love the way that J.C. Ryle put it. He said, it is the sin that leaves deeper scars upon the soul than any other sin that a man can commit. And I say that, and I know, I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you, you know that journey intimately. You know, because of things that have been done to you, because of things that you've done. And Paul's point is that because sexual intimacy is the deepest uniting of two persons, it's misuse damages us on the deepest, or wounds us on the deepest human levels. And so, Paul's command, one word. Did you catch it? What? Flee. Flee. Like, run away from it. It's a present imperative command. Meaning, you don't need to pray about it. Do it. Right? He's going, like, get out of there. Get out of that situation. It's not a suggestion. Um, I have a, a good pastor friend who is currently housing some Ukrainian refugees who were on vacation when the war broke out in Ukraine. 
Can you imagine? And so they had to decide, what, what do we do? And what they decided was, here's what we're going to do. We are going to, any guesses? Flee. Right, thank you. You're dialed in. You're, you're seeing where I'm going with this. They didn't go back to their house. They, they didn't say, you know, we've got some really important pictures there we should probably go get. They went, we're refugees now. We cannot go home. And I think the picture that Paul wants us to have in our minds of what it looks like when we are confronted with sexual temptation, when we are starting to be dragged into a place where we are in the position where we might dehumanize ourselves or somebody else, that we don't play with that, we don't mess with that, we get out of that situation as quickly as we can because we have to see temptation as a trap to escape, not a challenge to conquer. It's a trap to escape, not a challenge to conquer. And, and let me just point out, because oftentimes the church has been accused of something that it doesn't actually believe, that Paul is saying flee sexual immorality, not flee sexuality. He's calling us to get out of situations where we would be in the position where we would compromise something that's dear to us, but he is not down on sex. Please hear me on that. He is not down on sex in the least. In fact, he wants to teach the church how to have the best possible sex life and to express their sexuality in healthy and joy-filled ways instead of walking in pain for the rest of their life. That's his desire. The church is not in any way, shape, or form down on sex. It's down on a form of sexuality that turns us into animals rather than human beings. And so Paul would write back and he would say, no, no, no. There's an expulsive beauty and power in sex. It's like a a fire. We know that image well in San Diego County, don't we? It provides great warmth, but when it's uncontained, it can just absolutely destroy. He goes, that's that's the picture. That's the picture. So, so how do we do that? How do we, how do we flee? Three things, and I'm not going to dive into them too much, but here, here's three things that we can do to flee. We'll talk about this later on in the series at more length. But one, I think we have to be intentional about avoiding compromising situations, both digitally and physically. Meaning, if you don't have a filter on your home internet, you should. Probably on all your devices. It's not a bad idea. And I'm not just talking to men. You do know that pornography is not just a male issue. Something that females struggle with and deal with as well. That we need to avoid compromising situations as much as we can. We should know when we're tempted. Are you tempted when you're hungry? When you're lonely? When you're tired? And, and then how do you make Um, some sort of provision before you get in that situation. Second, we need to choose to be accountable. And accountability is not just getting with a group of people on a morning every week and going, how are you doing? That's a part of it. But accountability is a heart posture where we say, I'm going to open my life up to the lives and the words and the voices of others that they might speak into my life and help me walk in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Before it's any sort of practice, it's a posture. And then third, we have got to repent and confess honestly and often. 
not just when we stumble sexually in the physical, but also when we lust, when our hearts start to get taken away, that we would be people who say early and often, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I want more. Jesus, I repent. Jesus, work in my life so that I might be pure in heart and that I might see But there's a second part of fleeing also. It's not just setting up those provisions in sort of the, the negative sense. It, it also is what Paul wrote about to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, where he said, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So it's not just try to keep your heart pure from all of those things. It's keep your heart pure and intentionally run to Jesus. The Puritans would um, use the phrase, feed your affections for Christ. Find out what makes your soul sing and do more of that. Because, as Augustine said, the heart that loves the Savior will do nothing to offend the one that is loved. Fill your heart with love for him. Or you might just sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow, what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. All right, I'm going to fly through this next point. Paul wrote this. Or do you not know that, oh, I can't fly through this point. This is so good, you guys. Do you not know that your, what? Body. Remember, Jesus wants to save your body, not just your soul. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So Paul, I mean, he just blows all of the categories up here. And he says your body is not just integrated with your soul. It is actually sacred space. The idea of being a temple of the Holy Spirit is, is most often plural. Uh, like Paul would normally write and say, all y'all are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the way it's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Ephesians chapter 2, all y'all are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Here he says, you and you and you. You and you are all temples of the Holy Spirit. You, catch this, you guys, you host the presence of God in your body. And what you do with your body either creates a habitat where the Spirit can function like he's at home or like he's a complete stranger across enemy lines. What you do with your body determines the habitat you create for the spirit. So, so F.E. Meyer, the commentator and scholar wrote, we are the custodians of the divine residence. Let us be very careful that there be nothing to offend or trouble the celestial inmate. FB for the win. I, I mean, spot on the celestial inmate. I love that. So we've got to know that hosting the spirit 
requires of us attentiveness and surrender. Just like hosting somebody in your home, you can do things that make them feel like family, or you can do things that make them feel very, very uncomfortable. You can do the same with the Spirit of God. I don't know about you, but I want to create the kind of habitat in my body where the Spirit feels like he can go to my refrigerator and take anything out at any point in time because he's at home. He can get in his PJ, sit on my couch, right? Because he feels like he's at home. And what we do with our body, specifically Paul's saying, what we do with our sexuality, either creates a habitat within us that allows the spirit to feel at home or causes him to shrink back into the shadows. Either way, you are sacred space. And what you do with your body matters. And Paul, I don't know if you caught this at the very end, he said, and you are not your own. How's that for controversial? And yet, and yet, this is exactly what it means to trust Jesus as Lord. It's exactly what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's exactly what it means to be a disciple. See, because discipleship demands, not that we give part of ourselves, just our heart, to Jesus. It requires that we give our whole self. That's why Paul wrote to the church, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your hearts. It's not what he wrote. To present your what? Your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You want to worship in spirit and truth? Surrender your body, your day-to-day living to God. It's the reason that the Heidelberg Catechism would ask and answer the question, what is your comfort in life and death? And the answer to what's your comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. How's that for a plot twist? You want comfort? And see, in our culture, everything is about get yours, defend yourself, defend your rights, make sure you protect everything that's yours, cling to it to the death. You are your own. And Paul says, oh, plot twist. Actually, it's the exact opposite. You want to know what it means to really, truly live? Surrender your whole self, including your body, to Jesus. That's why he ends by saying, you are not your own for you were bought at a price. So glorify God in your what? Body. Here's his challenge to us. Allow God's value of you to shape your devotion to him. He says, this is is the the God. The, The command is coming to, to honor God with your body is coming from somebody who's given their life for you who's paid the penalty of sin for you. So he cuts off at the past the question of why in the world should we trust Jesus with our sexuality? And Paul's answer is because Jesus gave his whole for you. Jesus 
paid the penalty of your sin to redeem you and to make you right with him. Yes, holiness is a gift that we receive. It's not a badge that we earn. Holy living is a response to grace. It's not a path to attain it. But if somebody asks us why in the world would we take Jesus' teaching on something as controversial as our sexuality, we only need to point to the cross and to the resurrection to answer. He bought us back. Therefore, therefore, we can give our all to him. Now, um, I'm six minutes over. And I apologize for that. But this is a hard subject, you guys. And and it's a a space that we are going to be in over the next few weeks. And so I want to close by saying that there is an, an abundant, unbelievable, immeasurable grace and mercy for those who would say, my life has looked nothing like that. And, and I need healing, and I need restoration, and I need help. As a church, we want you to know we are here for you, to walk with you, and Jesus has good in store for you. If you've been abused in the area of sexuality, we want you to know that there is healing available. If you're struggling with pornography, which we're going to be talking about more over the next few weeks, we would love for you to reach out, no shame, and to be helped because what you continue to hide, God cannot heal. And we want to be a space where we can find healing and wholeness and walk into the life that Jesus has designed us to walk in. Amen? So, would you do me a favor? Point north. (laughs) It's that way. The question is, will you, will we choose to live in it? Let's pray. So Lord, in this very tender area of our humanity, where we experience brokenness and, and pain and wounding, We also want to acknowledge your your design and your goodness. Spirit of God, move in our midst. Bring freedom. Bring wholeness. Bring healing. Bind up the brokenhearted. Pray that the enemy and his voice of condemnation would have no place in the hearts of Jesus' followers here. But that your voice of kindness and conviction would lead us to repentance that would bring about life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.